Morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. So, it's been Halloween this week. So, who's taken part in a bit of Halloween celebration? Anybody? No trick-or-treaters around your house? No? Some of us had a trustees meeting, so I hid in the back of the house with the lights off so that I didn't get any trick-or-treaters in the middle of a Zoom call with the trustees. When I was a child, Halloween was, I think, looked down a bit on my by my church community. And, and honestly, at the time, I feel like I, I knew why, but now I, I have no idea why anymore. I don't know whether it was because it was a pagan thing, or it didn't acknowledge the Christian faith or not, or whether it's because it was from America, and, you know, who wants something from America? I don't, honestly, I don't know. Because it's got some Christian roots, as well as some Celtic roots, with Halloween being the eve, the night before All Saints Day. Um, which was when people went to church to pray for the dead or to light a candle on the grave of a loved one. And even that I find, I've always found a little bit odd, I don't know about you, um, because I'm not sure when I'm dead there's anything to pray for. What do you think? I don't know. Whatever we believe about what happens when we die, I feel it probably happens and then we move on or don't move on, whatever you believe. Um... But I guess I also recognise there's some value in that as well. A time to remember our loved ones who are no longer here. And that feels like an important thing as well. And I've got a bit of a similar relationship to the topic we're looking at today. So the topic today is who's going to heaven. Um, and and I wrote the topic, so I can't complain. But um, <laughs> when I've been talking to, I've talked to a few different people over the last couple of weeks about the topic. And one of the most common reactions has been, I'm not really sure that I'm bothered. Like something will happen when I die, and I guess I'll find out when that happens. But then most people have also had some sort of a story to tell of being told as children or when they were young in their faith that we need to become Christians or pray a prayer or be born again so that we go to heaven when we die. And most people that I've talked to have then said, I didn't feel that meaningful. You know, if I was five or 10 or 15 and somebody was talking about, you know, you have to do this so that you go to heaven when you die, just seems such a long way off. It didn't really feel that meaningful for me. Um, and, and I thought that was like, that's, it seemed quite, quite a consistent res- response from people. And yet, I guess I also recognize that for many of us, the teaching of the church about how we're saved, who goes to heaven, has a huge impact because it tells us about whether our family and friends are going to be in heaven with us when we die or whether they're going to be in eternal torment or whatever else you want to say about hell. And so... Um, that's important, right? Um, and that if we're taught that our family and friends who haven't like done something in some sort of formula are going to go to hell, that's not that's not a nice thing to be thinking about. Maybe in church we don't talk about it that much, and maybe that's because it doesn't it doesn't quite feel right talking about that. It doesn't sound very welcoming or friendly or loving to go around telling people that they're going to hell, doesn't it? I mean, we've all seen the street preachers telling us that's what's going to happen, but I don't know about you, they make me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, it's maybe not the look we're trying to aim for as church. Um, and 
And I guess one of the problems we have with thinking about this topic, whether we who goes to heaven, is like most of the topics we've been talking about recently in this series, is that it's so culturally ingrained, isn't it? We're taught about it at school, in church. We see art and film that talks about hell and fiery damnation. We hear it in songs, in popular songs. There are references to it all the time. And there's not very much that tells another story. So as an example, has anyone seen this picture? <laughs> Linda's going, this, the, our computer's quite slow. I might have to describe the picture. Okay, the picture is um, a picture of The Last Judgment by Michelangelo. And it covers the whole altar wall of the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City. So it's a very, very famous picture. So those of you who might have seen it, it's um, so like you can probably imagine the Sistine Chapel and what some of those pictures look like. And from a distance, the picture looks beautiful. It looks really amazing. But if you look too closely, it's actually quite disturbing because it's got figures on one side that are going up to heaven and then it's got figures on the other side that are going down to hell um, and who are like it's have lots of different forms of torment based on hell. Oh, we've got it. So you can see. So, yeah, pictures on the left are people going up to heaven and people on the right are going down into going down into hell. And it's based on. Dante's probably equally famous um, divine comedy, which has nine different layers of hell for different levels of evil people, as well as heaven and purgatory. So you might be familiar with that picture or that story, or if not, you'll have had at some point come across something, some sort of art or imagery that talks about heaven and hell, um, whether that's in an art gallery, in a film, in a book. And this is that, well, that's in the Christian tradition, and that's what we're probably we're most used to. But there are many depictions of heaven and hell using maybe different names um, in different faiths and religions and different cultures as well. Um, so lots of terrifying pictures of hell and its different layers of and how bad it is. So our culture is steeped in this idea of heaven and hell and eternal punishment for those who haven't lived a right life, said the right prayer, and haven't lived a good life or whatever. So maybe it's no surprise that it's how many of us think about our faith and how we explain and understand what it is to be saved by Jesus, i.e. that it's, it's about escaping the eternal fire of hell. But this isn't the only story. And today I want to talk about a different story, a different way of understanding. And you don't have to accept or... Um, you don't have to accept all of what I'm going to say this morning. In fact, you don't even have to accept any of it. It's up to each of us to decide for ourselves. And I think this whole, you know, I don't know what I think. And I think I, I think there's lots, most people don't have a really fixed view. I don't think we can know exactly what heaven is like. I don't think there's something in the Bible that tells us that. But I hope that it's helpful to listen and to be aware of the fact that there is a different way of understanding the story and understanding the Bible that can give us a bit of a different approach. So this story I want to tell you is the one that says, 
we're all in. There's not a group of people who are chosen and who go to heaven and another group who are not chosen or who haven't said the prayer and who therefore go to hell. We're all in. We're all chosen. We all go to heaven. And I know for some people this may feel a bit radical or unconventional. And so it's important to know that this is not a new idea. The Eastern Orthodox Church, for example, believes that when Jesus rose from the dead, he closed hell, and so they don't believe in eternal damnation. And we can find some prominent theologians and bishops dating right back through the centuries, right back from the beginning to um, currently, who believe that everyone will be restored or redeemed by God at some point. So as an example... Clement of Alexandria, who lived in 150 to 215 AD, and who said that he studied under one of the original apostles, said this, um, All men are Christ's, some by knowing him, the rest not yet. He is the saviour, not of some, and the rest not. For how is he saviour and lord, if not saviour and lord of all? We can set no limits to the agency of the redeemer to redeem, to rescue, to discipline in his work, and so will he continue to operate after this life. So it's not a new idea. It's not the woolly liberals of the 21st century that have come up with this idea. And a typical argument says, God loves the world. God doesn't just love, but God is love. So when God created the world, it doesn't feel right to think that he created a world where only some are saved. If God created us all in his image at the beginning of the world, out of love, then surely he wants us all to be in, us all to be saved. And he doesn't want to condemn people to eternal punishment. And if we believe God is all-powerful, then we have to believe God can do this. So yes, we do have free will, and we make bad choices that distance ourselves from God. In fact, to the extent that hell exists, maybe it's the self-exile of the soul from God's love. It's when we choose to reject God's love and experience the result of this. But at some point, we'll all be reconciled with God. And while traditionally it's thought that we have to make the choice in this life and so need to turn to God before we die, why would God make the world like that? It's like a father being inside the house with his son or daughter knocking desperately on the door asking to come in. Wouldn't a good father open the door and let them in, even if they've passed the deadline? If we as humans can love people and not want them to be condemned, then surely God can do that even more. So the point is that we're saved through the faithfulness of Jesus, not through something we've done. So while we may have been told a formula about how we're saved or born again, that formula isn't in the Bible. So we can look at what Jesus says. Jesus has said many different things in the Bible, and depending on the context or the question or the people he's talking with, it's different. So I'm just going to give you a few examples of what Jesus says about, um, about being saved. So one example is in Matthew 10, which says, You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And in Matthew 7, Jesus says, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Luke 19 says, But Zacchaeus stood up, and so it's the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and I have cheated anybody out of anything. I'll pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. So, is being saved about believing? Or is it about standing firm, or doing God's will, or giving your your possessions to the poor? All of those things come up in those few verses. Jesus doesn't give a straight, direct answer to this question of how we are saved. And we can also find lots of verses that talk about everyone being saved. So again, I've got a few examples, so you're going to have to bear with me as I read them. But I think they're important. So Colossians 1 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And Philippians 2 says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And 1 Timothy says, For to this end we toil and struggle, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. And Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. So, while you will be able to find verses in the Bible that talk about a final judgment, we could look at these in detail, interpret them if we had the time, Um, the overall picture is one of the Bible's narrative of God's saving grace for everyone, and Jesus doing the work that means we can live, not something that we do or don't do. And so with that in mind, an understanding that excludes some and includes others, and let's be honest, for most of us, that understanding means including people like me, excluding people like them. Um, That just doesn't seem right. And it doesn't fit with either these these verses in the Bible or the overall trajectory of the Bible where Jesus comes to save the world, not just the Jews, but to save everyone. So, so far, so good. Or maybe, so far, so controversial. Let's think about it later. Um, But none of this really makes sense, does it, until we understand what heaven and hell are, or rather until we understand what it means to be saved. What do we mean by all of this? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not really sure what heaven is. Or even if I think it's um, a completely different place, 
I don't think it's a place in the clouds where people play harps. And I don't think it's a place where the roads are paved with gold or whatever imi other image it is that you've heard in a song or you might con we might conjure up in our, in our minds. And the truth is that while heaven and hell seems to be pretty important in many people's idea of what being a Christian is all about, it's not such a key feature in the Bible. But let's think a little bit about how those words are understood in the Bible. So in the Old Testament, the word for hell isn't understood in a sort of a fire and brimstone way, which is maybe the, the way that we understand it today. But it's rather, it's a bit more of a neutral thing. So in the Old Testament, hell is like, a, it's a vague place where we go when we die. Something like a grave where everyone goes good and bad. It's not a place of punishment and fear. And when God's coming judgment is discussed, it's talked about in a positive way to be celebrated and longed for when injustice will be put right. So that's how it's described in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, there's quite a few different books that don't mention hell at all, but it's, and it's Jesus that uses the word hell most. And, and, but that's how we, we've got the word translated. And the word Jesus most often uses is Gehenna. And that is actually a place. It's a place just outside of Jerusalem, which gets translated as hell. And this place, it's got a bit of a dodgy history. It was um, First, it was a place of child sacrifice. And at the time of Jesus, it was a rubbish dump. So, saying that you don't want to go to Gehenna was like saying you don't want to settle for living on life's rubbish dump, or you don't want to end up in a living hell in this life. The other words that are used in, um, by Jesus are the words Sheol or Hades, and these refer to a temporary place, a bit more like the Old Testament meaning, so grave or a temporary abode of the dead. Probably one of the more famous examples of Jesus talking about heaven and hell is the story of the sheep and the goats. When Jesus talked about when he comes in glory and has all the nations in front of him and he will separate everyone out into the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are the ones who helped the hungry, the prisoner, the stranger, and they go to eternal life. And the goats didn't help those people and they go to eternal damnation. But again, it's another one where if we look at the interpretation of the words, that's important. So most theologians would say this is better interpreted as a time of pruning. So a fixed period of time. It's not forever where transformation and change is possible. Which links to our thinking about heaven or eternal life. What does this mean in the Bible? So heaven is mentioned a little bit more in the New Testament, and often it's in the phrase kingdom of heaven. And again, if we look at the context for this, we need to remember that at the time, people had huge respect for the name of God, and so many didn't say the word God. And so, so saying kingdom of heaven can be a way of referring to God. And so in the, if you read the context very often, the word kingdom of heaven just is another way of saying God. It can also refer to a place or a realm, so the kingdom of God being the place where God's way happens. So this can refer to God's way happening on earth in the here and now, as well as hope for the future that things will change. 
that the belief that one day God's way will happen fully on earth as well as in heaven, and so heaven and earth will become one. So talking about going to heaven can mean being part of the new thing God is doing or is going to do on this earth. Now, another way of talking about heaven is to talk about eternal life, isn't it? And probably when we use the words eternal life, we often mean the same thing. And there's a story in the Bible where a rich man asks Jesus what he must do to receive eternal life. So this feels like a great place to look if we want to understand eternal life or to understand heaven. I'm going to read the passage, so it's quite long. But when I'm reading it, just if you can, sort of notice what different words are used for referring to what we might think of as heaven or eternal life. So it's in Matthew chapter 19. So then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Obviously, there's a lot more in that passage to unpack than we're going to do this morning. But if you were listening carefully to this, you will have noticed that there's lots and lots here. And not least the fact that lots of different terms are used to refer to a similar thing. So we've got eternal life, enter into life, have treasure in heaven, enter the kingdom of heaven, enter the kingdom of God, be saved and inherit eternal life. Lots and lots of different words that mean different things, but maybe similar things. So what does it mean? What is Jesus' answer to that basic question, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Well, actually, 
you'll have noticed that he doesn't actually answer the question, does he? So while the rich man asks, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus replies, why do you ask me about what is good? And then he goes on to say, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Enter into life. It's not quite the same as go to heaven or have eternal life as we understand it, is it? But if we look at the culture of the time, the rich man wasn't really asking about heaven in the way that we would understand when he asked about eternal life. He's referring to the age to come. So we currently live in this age, and then we'll have the next age. So the next period of time, neither of those periods of time last forever. And we're not being specific about when they start or when they end. So it's another way of talking about the future. Eternal life in the culture of the time doesn't mean living forever. It's talking about the future. It's what we see in the Old Testament when the prophets talk about the future and describe peace on earth, what God's kingdom will look like. So the age to come, or eternal life, is talking about heaven on earth, God's kingdom on earth. And we can read descriptions in the Old Testament, for example, where swords will be beaten into plowshares, where everyone will walk in the light of the Lord, where people will be given grain and fruit and crops and new hearts and new spirits. And for me, it's interesting to note that even in the Old Testament, when we read about these visions of of God's kingdom on earth, they refer to everyone, to all nations. And this means in Jesus' time, with people having been brought up in that Jewish culture, eternal life isn't talking about a different place. It's talking about a better earth. The rich man and Jesus were both living in in that culture, so they both knew that what the question meant. It's asking... How do you make sure you're part of the new thing that God is going to do in the future? And Jesus' answer is all about how the man is living now, giving his riches to the poor. So maybe this puts a new perspective on our views of going to heaven or what salvation is. What are we talking about? Or to put it another way, if we're all going to heaven anyway, in that sense of being restored to God... What's the point in following Jesus right now? What's the point of it all? And to understand this, we probably need to think a little bit. We haven't got time to think in depth, but a little bit about what we mean by salvation or being saved. Because in one sense, what we're talking about is not whether we go to heaven when we die, but what does it mean to enter into salvation, to be saved by God? And when we look into this, we'll find it might not mean a transactional thing. Do this or say that, and then you'll go to heaven. And it also may not fit our Western tradition of being about an individual and about how our own future might be secured, maybe in contrast to someone else who hasn't applied the correct formula. Rather, salvation in the Bible is much more broad and much more holistic Salvation is about our whole lives, and being saved refers to freedom, being whole. It refers to healing, harmony. It's about well-being, and it's well-being for our communities as well as for ourselves as individuals. So it's about bringing well-being and wholeness in today's age, now, and in the age to come. 
the future. So it's something we can work at for now and to build for the future. It's something we can work out for ourselves and for our neighbours. It's something God is interested in for the here and now, for us and our neighbours, for now and the future. God's salvation is a process of healing for each of us where we're transformed by God. And then we open ourselves to transforming the world as well. Salvation is about being changed or transformed by God's grace. It's a process of entering into God's saving work. It's not a single moment. It's a lifetime of practice, receiving God's healing grace, being changed by it, and offering healing back to the world. Or to put it another way, Jesus brought salvation through his death and resurrection as this was the inaugural moment, the start of a worldwide revolutionary movement for restoring, reconciling, and renewing the whole of God's creation. It's happening now in pockets and will happen fully in the age to come. So, we started with the question about who goes to heaven And we've said that there can be a different story to the one we may have traditionally taught where some people are in and some people are out. That rather, Jesus came to earth to restore everyone to himself. And where we may not know how and when this happens, we can believe that in some way at some time, everyone will be restored to the God who loves us and never stops loving us. And in one sense, this is heaven. And it's the opposite of being of people being damned to everlasting punishment or however we want to describe hell. And also we've talked about different ways of thinking about what heaven or eternal life or salvation mean. And when we talk about these things, we're talking about well-being and wholeness for ourselves and for our communities. Brian McLaren talks about it as true aliveness, and I kind of like that. So what we do and how we act matters. And we can act with confidence in the knowledge that we are saved and live in that confidence. Live in a way that acknowledges our salvation and builds and grows our wholeness and well-being, which is our destiny with God. This is how we experience our salvation in the here and now. So my final thought, and maybe this is the thought to think about in the coming week, is how do I live in my salvation? How do I live in a way that has that confidence and also brings about my wholeness and well-being, as well as building that for the future and for my community? And you'll know me, so I don't have a fixed answer to that question, but I feel it's got something to do with my transformation, my willingness to be transformed by God and to work on living in the center of the life that God has created for me and to work for the future that God has planned where his perfect way comes to be on earth as well as in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you that we do not need to understand the detail of how all of this works in order to be part of your salvation, to have that salvation for ourselves. 
We thank you that you love us so much. We thank you that your love never ends. And we pray that as we ponder some of these things in the coming week, that you will transform us and that we'll, we will be open to that transformation, to living and acting and knowing your salvation for our lives every day. Amen.